All right, good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining us today. Um, if you would, please turn to Romans chapter 6. Uh, we will be in some other passages, I should tell you. Uh, for those of you who have not heard me preach in a while or who are not familiar with my preaching, uh, one of my methods is to do long introductions for short sermons. I'm going to mix it up a little bit today. Um, it will be a shorter introduction, but I still have a longer introduction than most people will. I will encourage you, if you scan the QR code here, uh, you should be able to access a page on the church website where we've got all the slides. So if you want to do that, if it's too far away and you can't get it, you're welcome to just go to the church website, uh, restorationhcn.org. And I think if you go to the link that says sermons, this should be the first one up there. Um, or you could walk closer right in front of me. I mean, that's fine. I won't be too offended by that. Um, yeah. So uh, I want to I want to share a couple of things here. I, I have noticed something in our culture right now that I know most of you have noticed as well. Uh, it's that there's a lot of evil happening, right? I, I talk about it often because the reality that's part of what we're supposed to do as faithful people of God. We're supposed to prophetically call out the evil that's in our culture. And when we have things like a, there is a, a petition going around right now to get a constitutional amendment on the ballot for Ohio to allow for the murder of children to be a constitutional amendment, uh, as well as their mutilation uh, while still very young. Um, that's wickedness beyond comprehension in my opinion. That's wickedness that aligns with uh, the worst of pagan societies in history. Uh, similarly, in Washington state now, a bill has passed where if a child has been coaxed into transitioning to another gender and the parents try to get in the way, the parents will lose custody immediately. Um, I think also of things like the UN is issuing a statement to try to seem to allow for certain types of abuse for children at the international level. And we could go on. There's a whole lot of wicked and terrible things. There's tyranny that's taking large amounts of taxes from people and using that to do things that are wicked. Um, people struggle. I can go, I can get really frustrated about the Federal Reserve and all that it's doing. To our, like I can talk about a lot of things that are really wicked. And I've noticed that the more the culture gets wicked, the easier it is for those of us who are possibly dealing with what appeal to be lesser sins, it's easier to pretend like those sins don't matter at all. And I want to take a moment uh, and preach on the issue of murdering the sin in our hearts. Because right now, it's really easy to compare myself to the world and say, oh man, I'm doing really good right now, right? I haven't mutilated anybody today. Um, I'm, I'm winning, right? No, brothers and sisters, I think what we're going to see is that what appear to be the tiny sins are indeed the root sins that grow into the big ones. And I'll just warn you, no, I'll encourage you. What often happens when pastors preach on sin is it feels like browbeating. I'm going to take a different approach today, and I hope you're encouraged. All right, so let me pray, and then we're going to jump first to James chapter 1. I recognize I'm sneaking in a couple of extra passages. So if you, if you need to look up one and you can't look back and forth, stick in Romans 6. But if you want to go back and forth, we'll be in James 1 in a moment. Father God, you are rich in mercy and abounding in love. I am praying today that by the work of your Holy Spirit, which dwells in those of us who have put our trust in you, 
that you would give us a clear illumination of your word, that we would understand it well, uh, that we would take seriously our sin, and yet that we would not be defeated in it. God, make us hopeful, make us sober over sin, um, and then joyful over your grace. Lord, I'll just recognize we have a tendency to either not take sin seriously enough or to sit in condemnation. May neither of those things be the result of this sermon today. Um, May we instead suffocate the sin that is in our hearts. May we chop the root to pieces that it would never bear the fruit of death. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right, so James chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. James is writing to the church and he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought forth the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. All right. Some very basic things that are mentioned here that I want to draw attention to. One, notice something here, that he gives a very clear progression of what happens with sin. It begins not with something that is happening outside of you saying, look here, now you're tempted. It begins with a desire that is within us. This is why he says, don't pretend like God is tempting you. That temptation did not come from him. It came from a desire that was first in your heart. That temptation was built on that desire. That desire that turned into temptation, you eventually committed sin with, and that sin ultimately will lead to death. Now notice the contrast, though. He says, don't be deceived. The implication in the context is, don't be deceived by your desire or by your temptation. Every good and perfect gift is from the Lord. Now, what, this, what the writer, what James is getting, that, getting at is that if you need something that is good, if a thing is good and good for you, God will provide it. Anytime we have to go outside of the will of God or commands of God to get something that we perceive to be good, guess what? That thing is not good for us. So if you would kind of look at this contrast here, uh, you might remember that Adam and Eve, when they were in the garden, experienced a certain kind of temptation from the serpent. And I will say, it is the exact methodology that our enemy continues to use pretty much in every situation. You will remember, and we're not going to go through that entirely, we did teach on that another time, but it begins with the assumption that God is holding out on us. Do you remember what the serpent says to Eve? He's like, oh, you'll not surely die. Side note. The consequence of the very first sin was death. It hasn't changed. And God says, if you eat this fruit, you will die. And the serpent says, no, you won't. You're going to be like God. The implication is God is holding out on you. There is something good that you could have that God is keeping from you. And so guess what? 
You have to go outside of his commands to get what you really want. This is how our enemy operates. It assumes that God is holding out, and notice, questions God's word. Can I just say, very seldom does our enemy flatly deny God's word, although he does do that too. Notice, especially among believers, especially among those who would claim to want to obey God, he begins by saying, has God really said? Right? How many in quote-unquote progressivist churches, I would call them regressive because they're just returning to old paganism, how many quote-unquote pastors in gatherings like that will say things like, okay, yeah, I know what it seems to say here in the Bible, but I mean, is that really what it means, right? Does it really mean that people are going to hell? Does it really mean that homosexuality is a sin? Does it really mean that lust is a big deal? And you will notice that there are many who love to say, has God really said? If I'm looking plainly at scripture and someone is saying, is that really what it says? Now, I will recognize sometimes there's a translation issue, sometimes there's a context issue, but anytime someone is looking at the plain teaching of scripture and saying, eh, is that really what it says? He is following the model of our enemy. Seeing God is holding out on you, questioning his word, and then notice that leads to, and this is what we saw in the garden, this desire to seek contentment outside of what God has provided. Now, part of God's provision, uh, let's be clear, is sometimes me working hard and and gaining something. It's not a bad thing that I, I want something. It's that if I desire something in a discontentment and I assume that I have to go outside of God's commands or God's will to gain it, I'm in error. By contrast, if you can recognize, godly contentment we see described as completely the opposite in Scripture. It assumes that God is going to provide everything that I need. Uh, or, or in some cases, that thing that I need is simply the gumption and the hard work to, to do what God has commanded, to, to do it with all of my might, and praise God, there are fruits for my labor. Uh, godly contentment trusts God's word. It seeks contentment in the provision that God has already given. And it seeks first God's kingdom, obeying his commands and desiring what he desires. We see the very clear contrast here. And we saw it first so clearly in Genesis 3 at the fall. So if we can understand principles here, sin leads to death. It begins with a desire that is in my heart, but the end of it is death. As we're going to see, this is all of them. It's not just the big sins. Every one of them results in death. However, more than that, if we would look very briefly at Ephesians 4, 25 through 30, it says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, I want you to notice that the language here is one of contrast. 
to the thief, don't continue stealing, but work with your hands instead, so that you'll even have an abundance to care for others. To the person who is causing division, stop that. Don't let the corrupt talk come out of your mouth. Instead, do the talk that builds up the body of Christ. Because ultimately, the issue here is those things are a certain path to death, the evil things. The good things bring about the building up the body. And in any case, do not grieve the Holy Spirit that's in you. This adds a different dimension, or I should say an additional dimension, to what's happening in the believer when he sins. We can say, based on plain principle, that sin leads to death. That's what happens. That's the result of it. But also for the believer, I have the Holy Spirit in me. This Holy Spirit, who is perfect God, who has existed for eternity without any sin, and who will continue to exist for all of eternity without any sin. He is perfect in power, perfect in righteousness, perfect in holiness, perfect in love, perfect in grace, and that Holy Spirit dwells in you, the believer. The language here is that you've been sealed. The very presence of the Holy Spirit in you is the mark that you belong to God and you have a hope of eternity. And when you sin, you are grieving the holy God that dwells in you. So now we have two clear reasons to avoid sin and kill it. One, it leads to death. I mean, I better kill it before it kills me. And two, Holy Spirit's in me. Do we think, I know that there's like almost like a cliche to like, would you do that if Jesus was sitting next to you? And I'm like, we've kind of almost made that, we, then we almost like create this image of like Jesus, you know, and he's got his long hair and his beard and his, the cliche kind of looking Jesus and I'm like, I don't think you need to do that. I need to think about the fact that God is in you. That the God who gives you the ability to overcome sin, the God who is holy, who has provided everything you need to overcome sin, is sitting there and watching you gossip. That same God is sitting there and watching you lust, and he's grieved because what he wants for you is the opposite of death. And you are following after and eating after that which causes death. Oh, more on that later, as I'm often prone to say. All right. Um, I will draw attention here to Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. It says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. God does not uh, pull punches when he talks about certain sins. He calls them abominations because it's like they're a particularly egregious all sin, by the way, will separate you in relationship with God, right? That sin is a big deal no matter what. But there are certain sins that are called abominations because there is an egregious nature to them. More on this. It says, uh, an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. Can we speak plainly that I would not generally, <laughs> at, least not, at least not before I was a pastor, I guess, I would not generally put sowing discord on the same level as hands that shed innocent blood. I mean, I, I wouldn't have. I would have seen hands that shed innocent blood as really, really bad, right? I would say, that, yeah, that's, that's the abortionist, that's the murderers, that's the, the rapist, that, like, yeah, that's, those are, that's really, this is the bad stuff right here. And I would say, mm, gossip, yeah, it's not good, um, right? But God, in his list of abominations, put those two things together. I would probably say, oh, yes, 
prideful looks are really bad in anybody but me, <laughs> right? I don't tend to think of my own prideful look as something that deserves to sit on par with the people who are conspiring to commit evil. I, I, I know that in my mind, it's hard for me to reconcile those. And yet God, when he made a list of abominations, he says, that proud look, I hate it. I hate it like I hate murder. I hate it like I hate those people who conspire to steal and, and corrupt. This is a troubling thing. When if I'm recognizing that sin seems to have a beginning in my desire, it grows in my temptation, it becomes fully grown sin when I have acted on it, and that it eventually leads to death, I have to acknowledge that, that there is a root to all of these things. Uh, I... I would say, as I, as I disciple my children and as I work in my own heart, to think about the fact that, uh, you know, Ted Bundy didn't start out murdering women. wasn't his wasn't his first thing. It wasn't like he was like, you know what, today that's all I'm going to start. He started, and he will. He said of himself, he started with lust, just a little bit of lust that grew into a little bit more lust, that grew into a little bit more, and that's not to say that everybody ends up becoming a serial murderer. But can we just acknowledge that like, it all begins somewhere and left to itself will result maybe not just in your death, but in someone else's too. And this is why it is easy for me to hear about sexual predators seeking the attention of children in a library, and I want to, I'll, I'll just be honest, I want to use violence. I do. A day may come where that becomes necessary. Um, but that's not currently what I'm advocating. What I'm advocating for is recognizing that that same sin has a root, and that root might just look like a little bit of lust that many men will see as not that big of a deal, but brothers and sisters, it is that same little root, it is that same little thing, that if it is not drowned and choked under the water of God's grace, will lead to the most egregious things that we're watching happening in our culture. Anyway, so the answer to this, brothers and sisters, is let's kill some sin. Um, so let's talk about how to go about this. Romans 8, 12 through 17. Uh, you will note this quote here. I am stealing this quote directly from John Owen, the Puritan preacher. I recommend reading his book, The Mortification of Sin. Side note, have you noticed that it's like, I mean, I'll just be honest. Churches I grew up in, when they talked about sin, it was like, you're just so, you just keep messing up and you should feel ashamed. And there's some of it, I'm like, well, you know, they've got a point. But I, I would notice just thinking like, I must just be so bad and I'm never going to do good. And so it's, and I'm like, that's, that's not necessarily hopeful. Or also, if I'm being honest, at times in our reform circles, we rightly preach that grace is completely free. Um, and if we're not careful, we'll be like, yeah, Jesus paid for it, do whatever you want, Right. Um, and, and we can run into two different errors here. We notice this, where one, where we're so ashamed that we never seem to make any changes and we just sit in a spiral of shame, or the other is we don't take sin seriously enough. So let's read on a little bit about this. And, uh, in Romans 8, starting in verse 12, it says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. In other words, you owe nothing to your sin nature. I know that that might sound just really basic, but I think we should think for a moment. You owe nothing to that old life but to murder it dead. This is for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's not a maybe, by the way. 
If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Notice the language here in Romans 8. By the way, this is at the culmination of a long description of the gospel that Paul has given. And here at the end of it, we're going to go back and kind of lead up to this in a second. But here at the end of it, he's saying, you are God's child. The Holy Spirit dwells in you, and his, this Holy Spirit is testifying with your spirit that you are God's kid, and he is making you holy, and so if you walk in accordance with this Holy Spirit, you're going to live. And if you don't, and you walk in accordance with the flesh, you're going to die, and that is how simple it is. This is why I'm very cautious about language that says, well, you know, when you were five, you repeated the sinner's prayer, so you're good. Right? Well, there's a part of me that would say, well, first of all, like, Yes, salvation is completely by grace, and you don't earn it at all. But if you're God's kid, you are going to start acting like God's kid. And if you're not acting like God's kid, I'm just going to say, maybe that thing that you repeated wasn't from your heart, and you've not been regenerated, and you are careening towards death. Repent and believe the gospel. Again, and I mean it this time, more on that later. If you would join with me in Romans 6. Um, we're going to start in verse 1, and I, I'm going to give some background here. Paul, in the book of Romans, and many of you all have been here when we taught through Romans. We've done it like three times in the last nine years. It's a favorite of mine. Um, but it's also key for our understanding of the gospel. And what happens in Romans, Paul begins in chapters 1 through 3 by talking about how sinful we are. And he says things, like in Romans 1, that we suppress the truth in our unrighteousness, that we hate God. Later on, he talks about how there is no one who is righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. No one desires the things of God. And, and it's right for us, and this is in Reformed circles, we talk about this, that guess what? You are a depraved wretch. And, it, and it's true for the person before they're regenerated. Right? A depraved wretch does not seek after God. This is why we don't try to just kind of entertain and get try to people attra attracted to what's going on. We try to preach the same plain gospel as has always been treated. Um, but something happens, right? The language of Romans, the language of Ephesians 2, is that when the Holy Spirit makes you alive, when you are born again, God takes out your heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh, as we see described and promised in Ezekiel. He writes his spirit on your heart, as we see the prophet Jeremiah describe, and something in you changes. It's the same as Jesus in John 3, when he's talking to Nicodemus, you need to be born of water and of spirit. You need to be born again. You need to be regenerated. Something changes in you. And this is not to say that you are free of the sin nature, but the language is you are no longer dead in your sin as you once were. This is why I'm very cautious when we're talking, we're rightly talking at times about sinful nature and, and you need to repent and all that and you're depraved before this. But I also need to acknowledge, once God has given you an, a new heart, you really are a new creation. And you, you need to acknowledge that. So this is what Paul gets to in Romans chapter 6, and we're getting into the body of the sermon now. What Paul gets to is, what does it mean now that I am in this life? So he says this, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, this is in the context of he's just said, 
Jesus paid for everything. You earn nothing. Praise God. Done. You've been justified. You don't do any work. And he says, shall we continue in sin then so that grace may abound? Since Jesus' grace is so big, do you just sin more so that you can just get covered in the grace? And he says, by no means. The Greek phrase here, as any of you all who have been through my Romans teaching know, is megnoita. There is hardly an English phrase that matches it in intensity. When he says megnoita, it is as if he is saying expletive no. Um, insert whatever expl- expletive he would put there. Now, he's not using an expletive, but he is using a fervor and an absolute language to say, absolutely not. May it never be. No. Right? So he asks a rhetorical question. He's like, no. Um, this is how Paul does it. And he does it a lot in Romans. It's kind of entertaining. He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Well, now this puts a different angle on it, right? He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Hmm. This means something. It means that if I am in Christ, there is a sense in which that whom I was is dead. Let's keep this in the back of our mind as we continue. Verse 5, it says, For if we have been united with him in, his de- in, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united to him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we had died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Key word there. It says, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul is going into a lot of doctrinal language here. Um, But can we just note, what he's getting at here is that when you have been baptized into Christ, I believe he's specifically referring to Holy Spirit baptism, the moment of regeneration. Uh, We do outward baptism in order to be an outward symbol of something that has happened inwardly. But when that has happened, he says, "It it is as if your old self was crucified with Christ. Uh, This is why we believe in the substitutionary atonement. Jesus knew before the foundation of the earth every sin that you would ever commit. That's why he is called the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. He knew the ones that you have yet to commit. He knew exactly how he would come to you, and he knew that you were his child. And when he went to the cross, every one of those sins was placed upon him as if it was you yourself on the cross. He subbed in. It is a substitutionary atonement. Atonement means payment. He paid that debt. In fact, here Paul says, died for sin once for all. That does mean all of your sins. This means that there is no sense in which Jesus needs to be re-crucified. Uh, this is why we don't get on board with the doctrine of the Eucharist, uh, the idea that Jesus somehow dies again, that there's been a, a new death for him. Uh, we don't believe that. 
He's died for sin once for all. We don't need to have that happen again. It's done. Uh, or as in some Protestant circles, there's this fear that like, oh, every time I sin, Jesus' nail holes hurt. No, no, he already paid that sin debt. But this is what's important. Because it was a substitutionary atonement, the old self died on that cross with him. And keep this in mind. The language is legal language. You had a life sentence. Sin's result is death. You died. You've completed your life sentence, or rather Christ has completed it for you. The deed is done. And so now a different kind of life has to be led. Verse 12 says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, think for a moment of what it means to obey a slave master. Uh, A slave master, we believe chattel slavery is evil and wicked, but a slave master sees himself as owning the slave. Now, remember years ago, we were not directly involved in any anti-human trafficking stuff, but we supported some ministries, and and we heard some stories. And I remember someone talking about how they would get a woman out of a trafficking situation where she was effectively treated like like chattel slavery. I mean, she was, like, everything was controlled by the person trafficking her. And they would get her out, and they would get her cleaned up, they would get her off of whatever addictive substances, and, and she would be doing okay, and they would bring her out to help minister to other women on the street. And they had to stop doing that initially, because all it would take... Now, this woman's free. I mean, it's over. Like, she doesn't have to go back to any... Nobody controls her, nobody has any leverage over her, but she's so used to hearing the trafficker tell her what to do that they had instances where the trafficker would show up and see her out there and he would begin talking to her as if he had authority over her. And that they lost a couple like that, right? Can I just tell you, we are so used to listening to the slave master of sin that we have been dead to. I don't have, you know, before I came to Christ, there was a certain sense in which I couldn't not sin. There, there, you, you have a heart of stone. You are designed in your sin nature to sin. It's Romans 1. We suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. There's a certain sense in which you can't not sin before you come to Christ. And yet, once you have come to Christ and that sin debt is paid, that same slave master likes to pretend he still owns you. And if I am not careful, I will listen. And this is why Paul uses this language, reckon yourself dead to sin. Remember that you have died to Christ, you no longer live, and there is a genuine cognitive thing that we do to say, guess what, sin no longer owns me. In fact, that guy died. Continuing on. Uh, So he says, uh, verse 15, What then, are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? He's saying, since we're no longer under the law because it's all been paid for, um, and, and there's a certain sense in which the law was actually agitating our temptation. So now that we're under grace, awesome. Does that mean we could just sin some more anyway? And he says, may it never be. Once again, it's the meganoita. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're a slave to the one you obey, 
either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. Notice what he's saying. You've been set free from this slave master, but if you go on obeying him as if he owns you, well, he might as well own you. He says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. As Bob Dylan likes to say, you have to serve someone. Uh, you will be serving. It will be, are you serving sin or are you serving righteousness to God's glory? Verse 19, he says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time? For the things that you are now ashamed. For the end of those things is death. Have you guys seen that this language of sin leading to death has emerged in something like four different passages? There are more, by the way. It's a consistent theme. It leads to death. And Paul's reiterating it here. He says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So my goal here in studying uh, Romans chapter 6 is to recognize the severity of our sin, the reality that we have died to it, and then hopefully inspire us to take some measures to kill it. So I'm going to just completely, I don't know if we call this stealing, but that would be a sin, so no. Um, I'm just going to draw attention to John Owens, what he calls his nine steps for the mortification of sin. I will encourage you to read this book. But John Owens, being a Puritan, Puritans get a bad rap, by the way. Uh, what we think of when we hear the term puritanical is a reference to something other than the Puritans. The Puritans were joyful people. In fact, at times would get teased for wearing too bright of colors because they were so joyful. Uh, of the Puritans, it's said that they were always happy until they ran out of beer, and then that was a whole issue. Puritans were joyful people. All right, they loved the Lord, but they cared about holiness. John Owens recognized the issue here that we saw, and he's the same passages that we just taught on. He saw sin as leading to death, and it was a serious thing. And so he gives these nine steps to killing sin. All of them are rooted in Scripture, and I'm just going to go through these briefly, and I would encourage you, if you want to take some time this week, study these passages. But he begins by saying, first of all, you need to diagnose sin's severity. Sin leads to death, man. It's severe. And this is where I'm like, you know, it, it is one thing to try to deal with a major pornography issue. And sadly, I'm looking at the stats. It's so rampant. It scares me. And it's no question that human trafficking and that the worst and most egregious of sexual sin has increased with the increase of pornography. And so this is why I say to a brother in Christ, murder that sin right now. When it's the tiniest little bit of lust and you're scrolling through Instagram and there's that one little thing that you're like, oh, this is a little bit, I see this, and you want to linger, murder it, man. Because as small and as innocuous as that seems, you might scroll on and you might forget about it. But you let that seed enter into your heart, that tiny little seed. Don't do it. Right? What's a, Uninstall Instagram is the other thing. The feds are tracking you on it, so, you know. Um, 
So he says, diagnose sin severity. Think about the fact that the Holy Spirit is in you. It's bad. See it as sinful. He says, grasp the seriousness of sin's consequences. It really does lead to death. It really does. Think of the fallout when we have seen a brother in Christ fall into sin. There are fallout, there's fallout for his children. The man who commits adultery, the woman who commits adultery, we see the fallout. We'll see it generations after. I, I feel like I need to say that again. We will see that generations after. I think of the great-grandchildren that I know whose can trace a history of brokenness and like every little piece and I'm like that sin led to this sin how many I will just ah, how many women on OnlyFans have faithful fathers that taught them this is what it means to be a godly woman and this is what it means to be respected by a man not very many of them and so the man who is so concerned with his own sexual addiction and who is gawking at other women and not allowing his daughter to be prized and pressured and she sees, my dad looks at ladies like that, I must need to be like that if I'm going to be a woman that a man is going to want. And then that's where, brothers and sisters, this is how it happens. I, I'm not preaching this because I'm, I'm thinking that somebody here is particularly, and that's not where I'm at on this. But can I just say, we think it's small. It's going to murder you. It's going to murder your children. So choke it out. Dunk it under the flow of God's grace until it suffocates and leads its last breath. Kill your sin. Anyway, so second, be convicted of your guilt. Have you noticed how easy it is to be like, well, was I really prideful when I did that? I don't know. Uh, what did I really linger too long when I saw that image? And by the way, I think there's another thing to give too much power to an image. I'm, I'm speaking to the men where we're like, ah! and we scroll too fast and we're like, we're so freaked out that it makes us more in, interested. It's another thing to be like, huh, I wonder where her mother has gotten off to and scroll on, right? Don't give it more power than it has. But brothers and sisters, don't, when you've, you know when you've crossed that line, admit the guilt, man. Admit the guilt. When you've deceived just a little bit and you just weren't honest, don't try to pretend like you didn't deceive. Don't try to t- pretend like it wasn't that bad. Don't lie. Just acknowledge the guilt. Be convicted of your guilt. And then earnestly desire deliverance. Romans 7, we see a genuine desire for repentance. Uh, we know what it's like to be like, ah, Jesus forgives 70 times 7, where you just sin again and you ask for forgiveness and you sin again. Not that Christ won't forgive you. But man... Are you grieved over your sin? Like, do you earnestly desire deliverance from the sin or you only desire deliverance from the consequence? Earnestly desire deliverance. He says, consider the relationship between your sins and your natural temperament. Can I just say, I talk a lot. I know this shocks you, right? Do you know that if I continue talking and I just keep filling void, And if I am left unchecked, I have a temperament that will lead to gossip, a temperament that will lead to slander, a temperament that will lead to coarse jesting. And I recognize this. I better recognize it because I need to pay attention to the fact that certain sins are accommodated with a certain temperament and that maybe I need to be extra careful in that area. Uh, Six, avoid the occasions that incite sin. You know where you sin, your besetting sin. Stop going there. You know when you commit that besetting sin. You know how you get there. It might be that conversation that naturally leads to gossip every time you're talking to that person at lunch during this time. 
maybe you plan ahead to have a different conversation. I mean, seriously, you plan in your temper. You're like, I'm going to avoid that situation by planning these topics, and I know when the conversation is going to turn, and I'm planning that. I'm avoiding the occasion that incites the sin, and I'm active about it. Why am I active about it? Because it wants to kill me. It wants to kill my church. It wants to kill my family. It wants to kill my state. It wants to kill my nation, and I have to murder it. Murder is not the right word, but it sounds cooler, doesn't it? Anyway, address sin's first signs. Uh, this means as soon as it pops up, repent and move on. Don't let it linger and have a little bit more fun with it. Uh, eight, meditate on God's glory. Think about the fact that this holy God, that when we studied Revelation and we saw what was before the throne room, that there are angels whose sole occupation around the throne room is to sing kavod, 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 meaning holy, 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 the absolute superlative of holy before the throne room. And that's all they do before the throne is bring glory to God. And that for all of eternity, that is what we will ourselves be doing. And this, this is the glory that is residing in me through the indwelling Holy Spirit. That maybe if I think about that glory, that I, I, maybe, just maybe, that the sin does not seem so sweet at all. I remember uh, Paul Washer used the illustration of like, it, you, you just get violently ill at the thought of your sin. Yeah, sin seems good. Sin seems good. But when you think about it in contrast to God's glory, you're like, this is repulsive. Or think of your sin after its effects have had its way. And it's like, this is wretched. Why did I ever do this? Why did I ever want this? I'm watching the death creep in, and I hate it. Hate that same sin now and meditate on the glory of God. And the last thing, I say this one cautiously. Don't rush to comfort yourself. Now, this one is cautious, because can I say, shame does not help, does it? Right? It's another thing when I'm like, I'm just so wicked, so, so wicked. And I, and I keep telling myself, and then you just kind of get in the cycle of like, I sin, I feel shame over my sin, I hide it more, and so I do it more, and I hide it more, and I do it more, and, and that's the cycle of death. So I would say, we need to be careful, don't rush to comfort yourself, but also don't rush to shame. That my goal should be to say, oh, Lord, I need you so bad. Like, feel the weight of your sin, but have grace. Yes. Anyway, all right. Um, I will just say, though, can, as I say this, and we're almost done, uh, as I preach this, I would say some of us we might be thinking like, oh, dear, now I feel heavier over my sin. Or some of us, if you're like I seek to be, like there are times where I'm like, oh, that sin again? I really was sorry, and I really did repent. What in the world? I think of when I gossip, or I think of when I don't stop gossip, and I'm like, ah, again? And I really am repentant. And it creeps up again. At times, if we're not careful, it can feel very hopeless. I wanted to offer some really good encouragement. Later on in the Romans 8, Paul says this. He says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, all things has no limitation. Um, that all thing could, in fact, even include the sin that you sinned and repented of. That God has a plan to work that for his glory and your good. Does not excuse the sin. But it is built into his plan. 
that could involve some horrible thing that happened to you. It could involve someone else's sin, that God really does have a plan to work that for your good and his glory. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, which by the way means he knew you ahead of time, he also predestined, which means he's going to get it done, to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, if you notice something, I mean, I'm a Calvinist, and I know everybody hates me for that. That's just, it's part it comes with being a Calvinist. We make fun of ourselves. We give, And I know that when we talk about Calvinism and God predestining us to salvation, a lot of times people think only of, cool, it means you're going to heaven. It does indeed mean that. But the language here is that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This means that there is a predestination that you will be holy. This should encourage us, man. Because sanctification is a long, hard road that involves me getting up every day and getting another nail and pounding it into the coffin of my sin because I don't want it just to be dead a little bit. I want it to be dead, dead. I want it to be suffocated and drowned forever to be forgotten and never come back in my heart again. And Jesus promises that a day is coming when I will be in his image. He will be our big brother, as he already is, but I'm going to look like him now because I've been adopted in the family and Jesus says, hey kid, this is what it means to be a prince in this kingdom or a princess in this kingdom. This is how we honor our father. This is how we live. And guess what? My Holy Spirit is in you to make you overcome that sin and wash you and sanctify you by our father's word until you look just like me. And nobody can tell the difference other than, you know, he's God and (laughs) I'm not. He says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justed, justified, he glorified. That means the past tense of the eternal state of the believer is used here. Glorified. We use it in, uh, in Greek. It is called the aorist tense. And it means from an eternal perspective, it's already done. You are already living holy in eternity. And we are just living it out for now. So all that said, I will encourage some reading. Uh, read The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. Excellent book. Uh, read also The Mortification of Sin by John Owen, and you can see how much I just took right off of that old Puritan's book. Um, and then I would encourage you, read Thomas Brooks' Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Powerful stuff there. Go kill sin, brothers and sisters. Um, with that in mind, uh, I'm going to pray, and then my dear bride is going to share the gospel with us. Father God, thank you. Oh, Lord, today I think of how we had a time of confession and and to hear faithful ones cry out in repentance and then joyfully accept your forgiveness. It's it's a wonder and it's a beauty. Lord, it is a, a profound thing that I don't think I'll ever get over. And so we praise you. God, may we hate our sin as you hate sin. May we hate sin in general as you hate sin. May we not neglect the sin that is in our heart. Make us bold to deal with it quickly. God, may we see in this church and in many others a righteous, faithful living uh, that has an outpouring into our culture, that the gospel would be proclaimed, that people would come to repentance and faith. Um, That thing that we often call revival that is merely your kingdom coming and will being done. Lord, make that happen to your glory. Um, We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.